Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a spiritual biography conversation with Erlene Chang and host Michael Lerner. Erlene Chang, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you for having me. Erlene, you are a deeply experienced practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. Yes, I am. And full disclosure, I've been a patient of yours for many years. Yes. (laughs) So we developed a friendship uh, as well as being your patient. You joined the staff of the Commonweal Cancer Help Program and Mm -hmm. teach Qigong regularly. Mm -hmm. Quite a number of Commonweal staff come to you. Yes. Quite a number of alumni of our Commonweal Cancer Help Program come to you. And when you treat me, we often have conversations about many aspects of healing and traditional Chinese medicine. So this is uh, a great gift to me to be able to uh, put on tape Uh, a little bit of what you've taught me and what we've talked about together. Certainly, it's such an honor to be here. Well, it's a joy. So tell us a little about your center and your school. Well, as you know, um, I run the Wenwu School in El Cerrito, nearby Berkeley. My parents started 51 years ago. We just had our 50th celebration Mm -hmm. um, of teaching Qigong, Tai Chi, Kung Fu. What we teach is what we call the internal work, internal discipline, internal martial art. We do not encourage students to have any physical contact. It's more all internal work. And that's what I've been running for the past like 23 years since they both retired. And we offer classes um, regularly. And uh, besides doing that, I also run a very um, small but very uh, sustainable um, acupuncture and Chinese medicine business where I, from my small clinic, we integrate with all the oncology department, naturopaths, osteopaths, whichever alternative medicine we can find the best for each person. Then we branch out from my little office, we reach out. So I have a lot of office throughout the world that we work closely together on healing of the whole body as Mm -hmm. a whole. So mm-hmm. that's where I'm currently facing. I'm also faculty at American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine in San Francisco for the past 13 years, where I teach the doctoral program, which one of the couple of the articles are published in this periodical that has just been coming out, and uh, where I teach only traditional Chinese medicine integrating in the modern oncology world. Notice I said the word traditional, that's how it was done from two to 3,000 years ago to the present. A lot of the elements were done then, it's still being done today because we follow this ancient theory of looking at the whole body as a whole. That's what I do now. I look at what can this person or this patient need when they come to us. And if they're willing to accept, if I'm willing to provide where I put all my, all my string, for instance, Commonwealth is one of my strings. I ask them, you can find answers here, you know, and then to bring that holistic, wholesome into hopefully complete their treatment, their therapy into healing, into, you know, no more cancer, into going on with their life. So it's a 
individualized, personalized work, but it's hard work because you're working with someone who is lacking of that part and not knowing that they're lacking of that part and be able to find, if you try this, if you try this, if you try that, if you, have you tried not to do this, have you tried not to do that, to incorporate you know, the wellness individually. It's really personalized therapy. So each treatment takes so long. So every time when I work on you, I will tell you different things. I will ask you, have you had doing this? And is that what's causing this? We find out the cause and then we look at what's going on and treat the effect. effect. And then gradually going back to the cause. So my work is very interesting. It's like someone who comes in with a blank piece of paper, you don't know what's behind, you know, the intake form, for instance, then you start discussing, then you go, ah, that part is missing, that part is missing. A lot of time I see patients, you know, live, their past lives in, their, in our treatment, in our conversations, I begin to see their past life, what developed to today's you know, diseases, what's going on with them. Cancer in um, Chinese medicine is like polarity of the whole body. You probably heard of mind, body, even mind, body, spirit, right? So mind and body should go parallel, 100% always to each other to incorporate, to develop, to deliver the wellness, the feeling of wellness. But when they start separating, then people start getting sick, okay? In Traditional Chinese medicine, we say that's the difference between the yin and the difference between the yang. The yin is like stillness. We're both sitting here still in a very quiet place, but inside is not quiet. All the audience here are sitting quietness, but inside of them, they're not quiet. Inside, their heart is beating, their blood is going, their you know, colon, their stomach, they're all moving their nervous system, their, all their system are moving forward. So that's the active side inside. So when the yin and the yang are separate, separate, in the beginning you go, you know, I feel fine, I'll just, I just need to sleep. I just need to drink water. And then later on in about, you know, months, even years later, you go, there's something wrong. That's when the yin and yang becomes very polarized. Then the mind and body start separating, separating, separating. So my work is very interesting. It's like a detective looking behind the paperwork and see, okay, what's really going on? And what is doing, being doing too much? What is being doing not enough? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that you begin seeing past lives of mm -hmm. your patients mm -hmm. because I want to bring that out right at the start. Um, you not only are deeply expert in uh, acupuncture and herbs and uh, qigong and other aspects of uh, traditional Chinese medicine, but you actually are able to see past lives mm -hmm. of your patients. Yes, I How do. does that help you to see their past lives? Um, first of all, first of all, um, I usually don't tell patients about their past lives mm -hmm. unless when we they're really willing, open to listen to it. Mm -hmm. But deep down, you will go. For instance, this patient has this liver cancer. You can start. From what we do, feeling the pulse, once I put my hands on the pulse diagnosis, all the images start coming in. Some are very strong, 
and some are not very strong. Sometimes you, I was, for instance, for instance, this patient's past life may be a butcher where he slaughtered animals for food, for making a living. And I would start hearing the pigs, the cow crying when I'm taking the patient's pulse. And I would go, why do I hear that? You know, I'm a vegan vegetarian myself for 25 more years. It's not likely that I should hear things like that. And sometimes when I see the patient, I could see how sad their past lives have been. Maybe loss of a child, maybe loss of a partner from the past life to this life that they hold in so deeply that they cannot remove. So these images these sounds begin to, I begin to hear, I begin to see these images. Sometimes I have to bring myself back during the treatment room and understand I'm here now. The images were just images. Then sometimes I question myself, are these images or is it a documentary movie that I saw that's bringing up? But through relating with the patient over and over and over again. The image becomes stronger and stronger and stronger again. So like I said at the very beginning, not many people accept, you know, the past lives, how it affects this life. Sometimes that's how stubborn these habits carry on from the previous to now. So do you, when you see the images from past lives that may be connected to what the patient is experiencing mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. Then how do you work with that information? How do you work with the awareness of a past life? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, you yes. in, in other words, very often, in fact, rarely I say, do you mention that you see past lives mm-hmm. with your patients? So how are you working with that information in order to help the patient? First of all, um, I would say prayers mm-hmm. first on my own. If mm-hmm. I'm able to see and hear, there must be some reason why I'm hearing it and being able to see it. There must be some race reason that I can help to elevate that situation, perhaps take a little bit pain of the patient, first of all. Just keep on praying internally and also for my own peace because I don't want to keep on hearing these, you know, unhappy sound or voices or hearing what happened to the patients previously, maybe in the previous life. Even in the previous like 10 years, 20 or from childhood, you can start to feeling the amount of energy that persistently, you know, saturate in the room with the patient. So I usually say prayers. And then if the patient is open to it, then I would say, do you mind if I light a candle for you in the temple? And then the patient will ask why. They will think, oh, that's for my treatment now. I say, actually, it's for many of the decades, many of lives that you've suffered. And you just end up in this life. We met each other. You know, then we go from here. You remember, Michael, I've said um, many times, and I still see that. Sometimes, you know, in my office, we have individual rooms, and in individual room, there's a, a treatment table, a little desk, and then every room has its own door, and there's a hallway outside in the office. And many times, and there's a window, um, many times we will have the door closed. It will be me and the patient. My receptionist has already left. And I would see shadows walking in the corridor. And I would say, why would there be shadows walking? I would see in the peak corner of my eyes, 
And sometimes I will see shadows outside the window as if there's someone waiting for the patient or for me or for the patient outside. Then I realize they may be coming for the patient. And each patient has their own situation and some are just really not ready to go yet. And sometimes I will make negotiation with these shadows. These shadows, I will see them pacing outside the treatment room where I, of course, I'm not going to tell the patient I'm seeing shadows, but I will see the shadows walking down the hallway, walking past by that little space, you know, in the door where you can see, like coming through, you can see the shadow going out. Shadow. It's not like, oh, there must be another light in the room that's penetrating. No, you can see them going, just like a, like a person that's walking, pacing, walking back, walking forward, walking back. Or the shadow, the shadows are dark, usually black color in the human body like, but you can't see the face outside the window. Sometimes I will have the blind closed, but you will see the shadow come, shadow goes. And it's not just a one-time thing. Maybe in the following week when I see the same patient, the shadows will come back. So I believe these shadows are, you have to have extraordinary sensitivity to be able to see that or even to hear their conversation with you or with the patient or other being. And then sometimes when the shadows comes back the following week or the following visit or the following visit, I said, okay, the shadow is ready to take the patient away. Mm-hmm. Then I would negotiate with the shadows. You know, I was first, you have, just like us, when we're so quiet, when you can hear a pin dropping on the floor, you'll be in that very super quietive state and you will begin to talk to the shadow. Say, can you go away, come back in two more months, come back in six months. And I will actually literally dot that on my medical charts, saying that conversation made today, asking for six months, asking for four more months, or asking for two more weeks. And often all that happens, as I see, it's, it's quite amazing. I mean, I document it all so I can see if this is real or is this uh, imaginary work. So I believe there's an extraordinary dimension out there and someone who's very sensitive can have the ability to see and to hear and to feel. I believe we all do. Everybody here, you can, I can, everybody in the audience, everybody online can see this. Everyone up to three years old, they still possess that sensitivity to be able to come have a conversation, to be able to see something where you no longer can see as we grow older. Become more mature into our other studies. Then their pineal gland are no longer so active to be able to receive that extra different energy from this world. So amazing work. It you know? is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, beautiful work. It is know? beautiful work. Yeah. Um, when is is this understanding of the presence of um, is spirit another word for shadow? In other words, are these spirits? These are spirits. These are spirits. These okay, the father used the word spirits. So, uh, is it part of the theory of ancient traditional Chinese medicine? that these spirits are real and that practitioners going back in time also had this relationship with them. And there is uh, one part of the most used textbook. It's mm-hmm. called, it's um, from one part, it's called 
spiritual pivot, P-I-V-O-T, spiritual pivot, where it talks about the person's spiritual re- relationship to each organ to answer that, yes. But these spiritual work are mostly used more in religious world. I'm a very deep, sincere Buddhist practice myself. Mm-hmm. So um, since I was young, when I was very young, I already have this ability to see and to sense and to feel since I was young. And I'm very lucky. I have great parents where I managed the school they started in El Cerrito that they never stopped me from developing whatever I wanted to develop. They never encourage. They just say, do your own thing. And if you find it interesting, just go ahead and do it. So, you know, since I was eight years old, I wanted to be a doctor. Since I was eight years old, I already knew what I want to do. You were practicing acupuncture with your dolls, right? Yes. I only had one doll in my whole life, you Uh know. And you practiced acupuncture on her. I used, um, you know those pins that you put in shirt? I practiced acupuncture on her for a year and a half. I'm always the doctor. Uh And my neighbor, Afang, is always the nurse. Uh Every day after school, I would take the doll out. I say, let's play doctors and nurse Uh and patient. And she's always the nurse. Uh I would say, hold her arm. I'm going to put Give the needle, put a needle in here. Mm-hmm. Hold the arm, I will put the needle in the hand. So I've mm-hmm. done that for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was the only thing I played. Other people play dressed up with dolls. I play acupuncture oh. on dolls. And I was fortunate to know your mother, who was the, the great, um, mm-hmm. a great teacher. I remember you brought her out here to Commonwealth once, and she walked out into the wooded area near Pacific House, our, the center of our retreat center. And she seemed very aware of, of spirits there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. did she have the same ability you have to sense spirits or was it different? Different, yes. How yes. is it different? Well, she doesn't see the spirits as I do. She doesn't I- hear or sense the spirits as I do. Her development of spiritual practice is later on through her Qigong practice, her intense Qigong strict training ever since then. That's in that um, circle where we encircled it with branches and the tree leaves. Anyone who wants, it's right next to the labyrinth if anyone wants to go try it. Mm between the labyrinth and the sauna house, mm-hmm. right in that circle there. In that circle there, when you stand in that circle, like time stops. It's not, it's just quiet. Time literally stops. Maybe the amount of um, forest energy there is quite different, but you just feel just everything just stops. Whether you are ready to have a stop or whether you're going in with a very stimulated mind, you walk in there, everything just melts, everything just disappears. So that's where she sensed that. So her path to this, you said your path as a strict Buddhist that this came up, uh, but I mean, you're a strict Buddhist and and the idea of, of spirit presence is part of strict Buddhism, but you were able to experience it from childhood. From childhood, yes. Whereas your mother... Her way was through a very strict Qigong practice, mm-hmm. which led her to sense spirit, mm-hmm. 
but in a different way from you. So she doesn't see them, she doesn't hear them. No. Then how did she experience them? I think through her Qigong practice, or her deep meditation practice, mm-hmm. when you go into that a deeper dimension, Mm-hmm. But you have to encourage your practice to go into that dimension where she experiences in that energetic circle. She walks in there, the same sensation comes back. I see. Yeah, I so see. it's that's why it is. Speaking of yes. your mother and your father, they were both uh, great uh, practitioners of mm-hmm. Qigong and more. And that goes back, how far back does... Uh, 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 does traditional Chinese medicine go in your family history? Yes, and it's, I'm actually the fourth generation in uh-huh. doing acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So my father, who practiced until he was 94 years old, mm-hmm. four months before he passed away, he was still seeing patients. Mm-hmm. Because I'm seeing his patients now, I could see the notes mm-hmm. from that. So mm-hmm. it was quite touching when I saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, then my, before him? Before him, my his um, uncle and my mother's great uncle was one of the emperor's um, physicians mm-hmm. in the palace. So that goes back to, to, to me now. And so the great uncle, who was a physician mm-hmm. for the last emperor of China, mm-hmm. is that right? Is that lineage, did that lineage from your uncle affect the lineage from your grandfather and father? And actually not, uh-huh. because my grandfather didn't go into medicine. I see. Yeah, and then, so the, it went from your uncle to your father. To my sort of to my father, and my father's uncle was also a very well-known Chinese medicine physician right. in their right. town. Right. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is that obviously acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine are very common in the United States and the West, and there are many schools of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and there are many levels of practice. Um, to what degree do you feel, and I'm not saying this is an easy question, that um, the lineage of the ancient traditions which you have inherited mm-hmm. um, makes a significant difference in how you treat your patients as opposed to, let's say, a Westerner who goes to a traditional Chinese medicine school, gets accredited, and begins mm-hmm. to practice. What are they missing that this tradition mm-hmm. brings to you? That's actually a very great question, Yeah. right? There are quite many Westerner uh, acupuncturists and TCM practitioners mm-hmm. nowadays. Yeah. I mean, more than three quarters are um, Westerner. Mm-hmm. There are many great Western TCM and acupuncture doctor, many great ones that I look mm-hmm. up to, uh, you know, and they've published many textbooks. Some are direct translations, some are deep within their own experience. So you can see their practice is not just, you know, a five-year training, but actually beyond that. What would be missing would be like, they do not know the Chinese culture as well as I do. You know, I was, I came to this country when I was 12 years old. So I went through the whole elementary school training in Taiwan. Also my parents' background teaching Tai Chi and Chinese painting in Taiwan back then. So we are always immersed with painting art, 
you know, Chinese medicine. And my father, father was studying Chinese medicine. So of course he practiced on us when we were little. So a lot of the Chinese culture, even in the food as diet, food as medicine was not, I don't see that in the Western practitioner. Not that they're not good, but if they, if they don't live in that culture, if they don't grow up in that culture, they often will miss that. But um, as far as that, like in Chinese medicine, a lot of times there's Japanese acupuncture, there's Korean acupuncture, there's Chinese acupuncture. So everyone claims that they are the acupuncture. Mm -hmm. I think that really mean is that they use the acupuncture and then they incorporate their culture into a lifestyle medicine. Chinese medicine is a lifestyle medicine. We don't just practice medicine or just put needle, insert needles into patient's body. We incorporate diet, exercises, religious belief, and meditation, and music all incorporated. So if you don't have that deep culture, like I grew up in Taiwan, where we have many cultures we still follow nowadays today, in today in today's um, modern world in Taiwan, like what we eat in the summertime, we will never allow to eat ice, right? We were never allowed to eat deep fried food. Of course, we wanted to eat fried chicken just like everybody else. We, because we go, wow, that must look delicious. But we were never allowed those. Those are the deep, just an example of some of the deeper culture that we incorporated. Um, like my, we used to live with my grandparents and my grandmother is a great chef. So she will always tell us how to cook. She will sometimes add something like goji berries, which is wolf berries into the food. And then she will tell us, this is good for your liver, good for your kidney, good for your hairs, good for your bones. She will add red dates. She will add all kinds of natural berries, vegetables, plants, spices into the food and make that a very tasty, delicious food. Whereas a Western practitioner, they may not have that experience or fortunate enough to grow up tasting this food, to use the food as a medicine. So that's maybe part of it is missing. But I do see so many great Western practitioners out there. Their publication, their mind, their research are phenomenal. No, to, I, to I this. agree yeah. with that. They're very extraordinary Western practitioners. Yes. Let's turn to your work with cancer. Uh, as we said, you, you taught and have taught um, mm -hmm. the traditional Chinese medicine uh, integrative oncology uh, program for years, and many of your patients uh, are living with cancer, and many of our alumni mm -hmm. from the cancer help program come. Um, if you were to summarize, well, Here's what I understand from our conversations. When someone is in active treatment with conventional medicine, as I understand it, your work is supporting them in their active treatment. Yes. But if and when they reach a decision or the time comes that people tell them Western medicine no longer has anything to offer, and then you're treating them without the conventional, then it's a quite different story. Then you're really taking on um, uh, treating them. So my question would be, 
as not only a clinician, but a researcher who uh, has published on this, how would you summarize the impact of the work you do with patients on uh, the patients, both when you're doing supportive work, when they're in conventional treatment, and when they've ceased conventional treatment and you're treating them purely uh, to, to work with them. How would you describe the impact that you see, both in terms of quality of life and life extension? So to make the answer quite short, mm-hmm. fabulous, marvelous. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes, fabulous. I mean, we have alumni here, yeah. and she can tell her story. Yes, and, and will. Yes, and we will see how she's yeah. doing. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Erlene Chang and host Michael Lerner. So when patients come to us, first of all, that means they are seeking some kind of assistance, support, right? That they cannot receive from the conventional medicine, first of all. If a practitioner can adequately and appropriately Like I said very early in this interview, that if they can see what the patients are lacking of, maybe it's, you know, social support, maybe it's psychosocial support, maybe it's food, maybe it's, you know, peace and um, um, anxiety-related type of thing. Or maybe it's their white blood cell or red blood cell or the immunotherapy or the target therapy are no longer working. So immuno and target therapy are now what's the top in the cancer treatment. It's no longer one chemotherapy for all. It's targeted, it's immunotherapy, including clinical trials, right? So when patients do reach to that state, many times their body has already been changed with different chemical, chemistry, and different radiation, and uh, their psychological, their physical shape, their quality of life have already changed. So many times they're seeking for support. A good practitioner is able to give the adequate and appropriate support, not too much, not too little, just at the right time. So the result will be marvelous, will be fabulous, and will be successful. Too much, the patient cannot digest. They will say, I have to go ask my oncologist. Well, the patient will feel, you're giving me so much pressure where I don't know if I can do this. No, I wouldn't say to a patient who's currently receiving chemotherapy, oh, take this supplements. These are good for you. Often they have to return back to their oncologist to see if they can. So that adds on more stress. Even though the patient may deeply, sincerely want to, but I also have to respect, is the patient have the energy level? Is oncology ready to incorporate? Why give the patient a stress? They're already stressful enough at this point. Physically, psychologically, socially, financially, they're already at a disposition. Help them at where they are and build step and step. And these steps are not like taking a step on a walk, on a hike. These steps often takes weeks, months to reach the next phase of recovery. If the patient can begin to recover, they can continue, for instance, if they wanted to continue with their conventional therapy, which 
these steps will help to build back their immune system. Then they can continue their therapy and then they can get well. If the patient decides to stop the treatment, and many do, and many simply don't need to have this chemotherapy for good or for worse, and if they decide to discontinue, and that's also fine. And then that's when I take over. I've been practiced almost 40 years. In one more year, I'll be in practice for 40 years. So I've been in practice 40 years. So since I was um, 20 years into my practice, general traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture no longer interests me. I have already reached a plateau with my own practice. I'm going, is this it? You know, I've treated quite a few very difficult, very successful cases. And I go, is this it for me? Are there beyond for me? Almost every patient that comes in, they get better in one or two treatments where they couldn't get in other places. Then I start to go, oh, patients, more and more difficult cases, like some are cancer patients, they come in, I go, huh, look at this, a new biological form, form within the biological body. How do the cancer and immune system coexist at the same time, where the immune system can drop and still can see there's cancer cells, they're still trying to work. That's what really developed a new life within the life. So if you can see what's causing that in the patient, sometimes that will go into the past lives, right? Sometimes it could go into in the Western world, you would say mutant, DNA changes or environmental cause or other drug or medicinal cause of cancer or bacteria or virus. Then I can see, okay, can we remove that from the patient's body? Are the patient's body already deteriorated due to the anti-angiogenesis treatment from the chemotherapy? Then can we repair that? How far can we repair that? So that's what's marvelous about. So it takes weeks to months, even to years to recover, even just one small part. But it is doable. It is possible. You know, one of the things... I learned about you over time, in addition to being a great traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, is that you are a master psychologist, just a master psychologist. And I, it makes me smile because I watch you doing that with me, you know, when I'm in there. And, and, and by the way, part of what you just said you're not, when you're working with a patient, you're not just doing the pulses, you're not just doing the acupuncture, you're not just doing the herbs. You're looking at the whole person, you know, that it might, you know, so for example, you know, are they having a problem in their relationship? Mm -hmm. You know, how could you help them in their relationship? Is it a diet thing? But you are surveying the whole person to say nothing of the spirits and the past lives, right? Which is additional. But you're, you're surveying the whole person. And then you very gently ask, you know, you know Michael, um, what if you offered to help your wife more? You know, that kind of thing. You know? Or, uh, you know, Michael, uh, uh, do you really think that... Um, that, you know, I, for example, I'm a great believer that people, uh, uh, 
may reach a point where they don't want to live anymore, you know, just to yes. conversation we often have. And that it's quite that compassion and dying, which is legal in more and more states, um, can be a good thing. But you have a very different point of view about that. You really believe that's not a good plan at all. So actually, in our last conversation, mm-hmm. because we keep coming back to that, mm-hmm. you said to me, Michael, I want you to promise that if you're ever thinking of doing that, you'll talk to me first, right? Yes. You know, and you said, you don't even have to talk to me physically. You can just send me a psychic message, right? So these are the kinds of conversations we have. And I watch you in general this complete mastery of the psychological, to say nothing of the spiritual dimension. Uh, And I just want to appreciate that that's part of your practice. Matthew Baldonza, thank you for joining me with Erlene Chang for this New School Conversation. We're so glad to have you here. So you are an alumna of the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program, and you've been a patient of Erlene's for some time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why did you uh, go to Erlene? What was your diagnosis? My original diagnosis was uterine cancer, and um, I went to Dr. Chang after I found out I was metastatic. So uh, it had been about six months after I was diagnosed. And how long ago did you discover you were metastatic? Nine and a half years ago. Right. And... um, uh, and you came on the Cancer Help Program originally, how many December years? of 2013, and it was right before I'd gotten the news. I so see. I was relieved to be here to be able to process that information. So really, you've been an alum and seeing uh, Erlene for about the same period of time. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what impact would you say that seeing Erlene has had on your cancer and your life? Dr. Chang has been consistent with me for nine and a half years. I attend, I've been going to see her every week. So every Monday I have the same time slot and it's a, it's been amazing. She's been the one doctor that has remained constant. And I think she has helped me through thick and thin. I've done many different types of treatment and she's been there for all of them to help me sort of survive them. When I first went, I was just remembering how afraid I was. I was a mess. Hearing news like that, when you don't expect it, I was very fearful. I was crying. I did not want to die. I remember telling you that I don't want to die. And and Dr. Learn knows me now, and I am full of light and energy, and I'm very happy, and I'm not afraid. And I'm not even afraid of dying. I don't want to die right now, and I don't plan to, but I'm not afraid of that process. I think that's such a critical development. Yes. I just... I'll offer you this. When I had a a major surgery for an abdominal aortic uh, aneurysm, and I I didn't know whether I was going to live or die. And I went in to see Erlene, uh, and I had realized driving over that I wanted, like you, to live with every fiber of my being, but I was not afraid to die. And I walked into Erlene's office, and I said you know what, I want to live, but I'm not afraid to die. And Erlene said, ready to live or die at any moment. Yeah. And that was her philosophy of life, that she actually, Erlene actually lives from that place mm-hmm. of being ready to live or die at any moment. And what an incredible gift it is when at any level we move mm-hmm. from 
terror and fear of death mm-hmm. to ready to live or die at any moment. So that, and to me, it seems that has such an immense impact, not only on our, quote, quality of life, just our being, mm-hmm. but also I think the, the reduction of fear yes. actually gives us so much more energy for life itself. I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree. So, so what, else, what else do you attribute to seeing Erlene uh, every Monday at the same time for the last nine and a half years? A calmness, um, mm-hmm. a meditative state, just feeling when I'm done with the treatment, like life is good. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. knowing that there's somebody that's watching my body and watching how my body is interacting with the whatever illness I might be dealing with. And I know she'll be there. And she's been there through a lot of different changes in my body over time. Mm. And having that support has been amazing. And I thank her for that. Thank you. You know, I also have that same experience that Arlene has been, along with my uh, physician, Dr. Anu O'Malley, uh, has been one of two or three of the most consistent supports for me. And, you know, the way Western medicine has been commodified, that like we're supposed to feel that any any practitioner can help us or our doctor moves on or whatever, to have those people that you really trust your life to mm-hmm. is such a profound uh, benefit. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And she's been there for my family as well. Mm-hmm. which has, I've been very grateful for. Mm-hmm. So not only me, she's seen my um, father-in-law when he was having a hard time, and he was extremely grateful for that moment. And it's just knowing that I have her support and kindness. Mm-hmm. And um, I think also she has looked inside of me. She has gotten me to volunteer. She's gotten mm-hmm. me to teach. Um, I do more spiritual activity than I've done before doing art. And I think you once told me my job uh, for the rest of my lifetime is to, uh, what was that, to uh, increase my good karma. Mm -hmm. And so it's been kind of nice to sort of follow that path. Mm -hmm. And instead of, I I was very much involved in the tech world for a very long time, and I'm not doing that anymore. I'm looking for things that um, help my heart and help other people's hearts rather than chasing after an idea which Mm -hmm. it's fun to do, but my energy isn't going in that direction now. Now my energy is going in more of a spiritual direction. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned uh, in the lead up to this conversation, the impact of coming to Commonweal on you. Do you want to say a word about that? I've told Michael this before that I used to say that Commonweal saved my life because when I first got here, my sister-in-law was the one who made me come. I had no idea what Commonweal was about. She kept saying, did you fill out the paperwork? Did you fill out the paperwork? And I did, and when I got here, everybody talked about how long they waited to come and how important it was, and they got to me and said, why are you here? I said, my sister-in-law made me do it. (laughs) So I really had no idea what I was getting into, per se, and I am so grateful for that first um, adventure here because that really, it gave me not only a sense of direction, of um, all the other options I had besides Western medicine. I've done both. Um, It also gave me a community. I continue to go to monthly support programs 
um, with other Commonwealth alumni. And I came back this past June because I have a new um, cancer diagnosis. I have a very rare oral cancer. We're working on that, right? Yes. <laughs> and um, so I told Michael, I used to say, Commonwealth saved my life. And now I say, Commonwealth taught me how to save my life. And that really makes a difference. I, you and know, that I have, is beautiful. I have a lot of gratitude for this place, and it's a very special place to be here and spend a week here and learn so many things and being with other people that are in the same situation and feeling what other people feel about their diagnosis and how they're dealing with it. And um, it's brought me a lot of love and joy and also a lot of loss. I've lost friends through this program mm -hmm. as well. And it's been great to know Michael and the staff, and I always feel like I come home when I'm here. So I was happy to come back this past summer, and the food is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that transition from, quote, Commonwealth saved my life to Commonwealth helped me discover how to save my yeah. life. Very powerful because it introduces agency. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, yes, Commonwealth helped you discover, but then... It was, it's your agency, um, which Arlene has also supported, mm -hmm. your sense of agency. I mean, when people look at me now, I don't think they realize um, what I go through or what I've been through because it's been a very wild journey. Mm -hmm. I hate the word journey, actually. It's been, at times, mm -hmm. extremely difficult. Arlene has seen me in a wheelchair. Um, mm -hmm. I have had fractures in my mm -hmm. body. I still have major neuropathy. But what I try to do is just every day just be so happy to be here and get past what I can. And I work with Arlene on those limitations and so that I'm able to move and do things. Mm -hmm. And I know certain things I can't do, and I'm okay with that too. So that Thank helps you. a lot. And Arlene, as you have worked with Kathy and heard her tell uh, her story here, mm -hmm. what what would you add? What reflections do you have on your work with Kathy? Uh, well, it's about 10-year work, right? Yeah. So let me summarize. Mm -hmm. Kathy is very unique in her own way. When I first met Kathy, Kathy was like, I'll oh, hear, I'm going to die, and I don't want to die. I remember every session we start is, I don't want to die. Every session we end is, I don't want to die. So I had to deal with for like three, four months to hearing that. Finally, I think I broke down. I told Cassie, can you stop saying that? Can we start looking forward to life, whatever day we have? You know, can we move on from this here? Now let's transit, transcend into the body. Let's start working together. Let's have the body work for you. Mm -hmm. So she is extraordinarily unique and she heard it. So Cassie was saying that she volunteers. So I asked Cassie, what do you like to do? She said, I like art. So I had her volunteer at homeless shelter where she would teach the women at the homeless shelter use art to come, to be creative at the same time to find a space where they can just land and express their passion for the world. And Cassie has done that through Zoom. Can you believe that? For how many years, how many times? And they love it. These homeless women are just loving this, you know, this Zoom art. Wow. <laughs> and Cassie is not just unique you know, overcome her own fear. She actually so generous in giving her time, so generous in buying all the materials, the painting stuff, 
buckets and buckets and buckets, I mean, containers of stuff for these homeless people. Now, tell me, is that fear or is that love? Mm. That's love without mm. asking anything in return. That is the compassion. So how can she not recover when mm. she has already let go of her own fear and her own disease? And now she's out there teaching on Zoom. It's not easy. She has to get two cameras, one <laughs> on her hands, painting, and the subject create a curriculum, and one talking into the camera and paint at the same time. And she did it. Luckily, you were in the tech world. You know how to do that, I guess. That you but I had did. no experience in the art world. We will say that I had... This was starting from ground zero. So um, <laughs> she's very humble. Her art, she drew two wild geese for me. The wild geese qigong, the wild goose qigong we teach at Wenwu School is now all her two birds that she paints is on all of our website. Really? That we use that. Yeah, I said, that's good enough. Oh, how Like beautiful. my mom's work to, yeah. to use. So that's... And before that, I did a a course in teaching the women how to get a job and keep a job. And I did that in person because that was before COVID. Mm -hmm. But when that was over, um, and I came up with the idea and I presented it to Arlene and the woman who ran the um, volunteer program. But afterwards I said, I don't want to do that again because I felt like work. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when we transitioned to art. And I enjoyed being with the women and doing it, but I just felt like I wanted them to feel how I felt when I picked up a paintbrush or I started to draw. So, because it really does give you, it's a meditation in itself. Mm -hmm. So there's several pieces I'd like to bring together here. First of all, your mother, Mm -hmm. uh, you spoke of the role of art and traditional Mm -hmm. Chinese medicine and healing. And your mother was an extraordinary artist who... Mm -hmm. Uh, drew Kuan Yin, the, the female Buddha, hundreds of times, right? Right. And uh, after her passing, uh, you did an extraordinary exhibit of mm-hmm. all her amazing Kuan Yin portraits. So that's yes. a piece of this, uh, that your mother's mm. use of art is powerful for all of us who, who witnessed it. But also, um, Erlene, you have been doing extraordinary work in homeless shelters yourself for years. Is it the same homeless shelter where Kathy uh, yes. uh, contributes? Yes. Would you tell us a little about, about that shelter, either of you? I'll start first, yes. and yeah. please yeah. you know, add on. So the shelter we are, um, work with is yes, um, Bay Area Rescue Mission. It has 300 beds. There is two parts of the shelter, men and women and children, okay? One is a long-term residency where the people who walk in who decide to be a resident, which receive regular program, like art is one of the program, writing, which we also have another cancer patient who actually, uh, Laura, who teaches there as their uh, writing teacher, and various pro- exercise program. And another part of the shelter is people who come seeing, who can stay up to a month and then pack and they move on. So the reason I started Homeless Shelter is, like I was saying, was my um, acupuncture practice into my 20th year, I'm going, is this it? You know, I'm at plateau. I, I'm, I mean, I had everything I wanted when I was 50 years old. Name, business, you know, um, social um, recognition in the world. I had all that. 
in at the same time. So when I one of my patients who works for the homeless shelter, she often tells me about her work at the ladies' shelter. So like I said, the Bay Area Rescue Mission, they have one side is men's shelter, one side is ladies' shelter. So she always speaks about the ladies' shelter. In my mind, I'm going, huh, what is it like if we, I can offer some alternative way other than biblical way following the Bible or the conventional way? to add on some alternative. You understand alternative way costs money. It's not covered by most insurance, not covered by many, many um, availability, especially to the people who are a little bit underprivileged. So I'm going, what if we start teaching them just to do self-care? This is self-care is not just brushing your teeth, doing laundry, Fold your sheets regularly. This is about self-care from the inside out. Rebuild that possibility of self-care that so quietly that they don't even know they're making the changes. Like how Cassie is teaching the art. You know, you can see these ladies, they are amazing in their expression, right, Cassie? Mm -hmm. on their On their work, which they're so shy to talk about it. They would never have a chance because they have to make a living to actually sit down and paint. So that's what I gradually bring back, bring to the shelter the possibility of offering something alternative. And I really have to thank Bay Area Rescue Mission for their vision. They're envisioning the future for these residents where they, Cassie have taught the ladies how to put together a resume. Even the lady would say, I don't work. I don't have a resume. And Cassie, what did you say? Well, there was an older woman in the class that said, I'm never going to work again. I'm in my 70s. I said, do you have children? She said, yes. I said, do they have children? She said, yes. Well, you can help them along the way. So then once she realized that she could use this knowledge, not for herself, but for the other people in her life, she was um, very happy to participate. But I also want to say, Arlene, you didn't mention all the Mm -hmm. alternative care you bring to the shelter. So Arlene does... You bring, why don't you explain how you bring in you chiropractors and acupuncturists. Right? And yeah. So she does a day-long program where she brings in alternative medicine and treatments. Mm-hmm. And, and the women are so excited to sign up. And mm-hmm. you also have done uh, special lunches, which I helped one time, which mm-hmm. was pretty fun to be in an industrial kitchen and do that. Mm-hmm. But the alternative medicine is quite Quite different, yeah. Yeah. And I really have to say thank you, Michael, for this question. And thank you, the shelter, for opening their doors to us. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Erlene Chang and host Michael Lerner. So I've been there on actually two occasions where Erlene shows up with... I don't know what, 20 practitioners, traditional yes. Chinese medicine practitioners, massage practitioners, physicians, uh, all kinds of people. It's quite the event. <laughs> and it's quite the event. And, uh, you know, and we're there at the, uh, you know, the chapel, at the homeless yeah, shelter in yeah. Richmond. Uh, but also to mention that um, uh, I introduced Erlene <clears throat> to our Commonweal uh, colleagues, Angela O oh and Tutu, who are supporting a, a homeless shelter in Tijuana. 
and uh, Angela and Erlene got really engaged with that, and her mm -hmm. foundation made a significant contribution yeah. okay. uh, to our homeless work in Tijuana. Yes. So, but what what is emerging for me from this is that um, the how healing it is when we help people recover their sense of the ability to give to others, that people come in overwhelmed with fear or anxiety or whatever about our own conditions, and then how incredibly healing it is to reintroduce the possibility that whatever our situation, that there's a way in which we can serve others, and how powerful that is. Um, That's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the homeless shelter. Yeah. You know, when they end up in homeless shelter, they either have social disadvantage or some mental disorders. Yeah. That's where they end up. Nobody wants to be in a homeless shelter. No. Even I told one of the coordinator, I said, I like to stay overnight in a homeless shelter just to experience. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, Arlene, you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's quite chaotic at nighttime. Anyway, if what brought me back to the homeless shelter that Cassie was talking about, the alternative therapy for them, was that um, where you participated, you saw, you saw how everybody worked their butt off to mm -hmm. serve these um, residents there. And volunteer. Volunteer, everyone's yeah. a volunteer. Everybody's yeah. a volunteer. And we also have musicians who play music while they waited for their services, mm -hmm. which I encourage everybody to reach out to the homeless shelter, to whatever nonprofit organization that they can even try to participate and be a part in the world. These women that Cassie was talking about that they can't wait to sign up. They love acupuncture, they love massage. Mm -hmm. Women often say, I've never been touched this way. Mm. That's sad, that, that, that's really heartbroken. Mm -hmm. The massage therapists, acupuncture, they're so gentle to provide some relief, temporary relief maybe, mm -hmm. but they felt there is love beyond. Even a strange person can love us to do that. Now that may change their life even just a little bit. So we keep on going back, we keep on knocking on the homeless shelter, say, let us come back, let us come back, until we've been doing this for 12 years that we offer the homeless shelter um, alternative medicine where we bring acupuncturists, chiropractor, osteopaths, massage therapists. We always have one MD and one nurse and one musician and a whole team of volunteers that help to serve in childcare services. So these mothers can have a quiet two hours treatment while someone's caring for their children. And we're not just talking about one child, they often have three or four children, little children surrounding them. To touch them, we actually are touched mm -hmm. by them. You know, they touch us more. When we live in a world of comfort, we often forget about those who are in discomfort. Serving the discomfort people actually brings back our gratitude, our appreciation. You open up my world, my eyes. Every time I go, what else can we do for you? Mm -hmm. So we offer special meals, like especially on Chinese New Year, we will offer a whole Chinese setup. We will decorate the dining hall, 
a very poorly set up dining hall. We would decorate into all Chinese and we would serve them Chinese food for one day. We also have brought psychological services. We have a psychologist who donate every Monday to serve four patients. And she's been ongoing for over two years, which the psychologist, she totally loves her work. She's not being paid. She's volunteer. She said, I began to see this ongoing therapy, how the women can become stronger and stronger and move out of the shelter and be able to move. So now many of the women's, for instance, two or three women will actually go rent an apartment somewhere, like in a more less expensive location. They will actually rent an apartment and they will start paying rent and start sustaining a living, start supporting each other. So the work the shelter people do, the work that we add on a little mm-hmm. bit to their daily life, it actually does fill those holes that are not being touched. I mean, if you wanted to study art, you wanted to study writing, you wanted to have an acupuncture treatment, these all cost money. When you're in a homeless shelter, you're on welfare, where do you get that extra? Have you even heard of acupuncture? No. Have you even gotten a massage? They have not. Are you able to afford chiropractic? What, even seeing an osteopath? No, they have never have. But these volunteers who come in, they come in with not asking for anything in return. They just wanted to give. You can tell, Michael, in your work in Commonwealth, you know how enormous amount of love and energy and the force that comes to you that you can make them change. And that's the work that I learned from them. That's what got to keep me going to continue our work. So, uh, first of all, thank you. And let's just give some names here again. It's called the Bay Area Refuge. Rescue. Rescue. Mission. Mission. The Bay Area Area. Rescue Mission for people who might want to know about it. It's in Richmond. Mm -hmm. And it's a very extraordinary place. Mm -hmm. And, um, And as I said, I've been there, uh, I think, twice on the days that you do this, and uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, And um, so, Erlene, I want to go back to the point where you said after you'd been practicing for 20 years and you really had mastered your craft and you wanted to go beyond it, and then you seem to make a connection, but I want to be sure I understand it, that Was that the point at which you began to think about wanting to do this outreach to the homeless and so forth, or did it take you a while to get there? No, I always wanted to outreach to to the homeless. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, we all doubt our possibility, our power Mm -hmm. of our ability, but my heart never changed from day one. We've been working, we have a nonprofit organization for 23 years. And what's it called? It's called the Fountain Project. The Fountain Project. Project. Mm -hmm. And where we serve only underprivileged community and society with people who are in need of something alternative than the traditional way. You know, where we also teach Tai Chi and Qigong, besides all the alternative medicine and therapy that I've taught about. And then now we're adding psychological, the mind, body, spirit together. No, I always wanted to do this. I was telling my friend, Pei Shan from Taiwan, I said, when I was young, I, my parents would take us to the Buddhist temple. I will always pray for world peace. Mm. Ever since I remember, I pray for world peace, every sense. 
thing I remember. I only pray for world peace. And then I asked my brother and sisters, I said, what do you pray for? They, for, they said, I pray I pass my next test with an A. I pray that I have a lot of money. I said, oh, we're quite different. I pray for world peace. You pray for getting a better grade. I said, oh, so not everybody's like me. And I am not like everybody. I ask for world peace, and they ask for an so individual team. How, how far back in your history does your prayer for world peace go? I mean, we talked about how since you were a little girl, mm-hmm. two things, that you could see spirits mm-hmm. and that you knew you wanted to be a mm-hmm. doctor of traditional mm-hmm. Chinese medicine. How far back do your prayers for world peace go? So ever since they be, I, I remember, and ever since my parents take me to um, Buddha's temple, when we always offer incense, always offer prayers, mm-hmm. ever since I remember, maybe five. So since I was five years old, since we're on this subject, I always dream every night I would be sleeping in my bed. I would rise all of my bed. I would sit up. I would look at my body and I would walk down. We used to live in a two-story building in Taiwan. I would walk down the step, not walking like step. I would like like the, the ghost glide mm-hmm. down to the downstairs and mm-hmm. I would exit the door. And I, then I don't remember what, where I went almost every night for about two, three years, I do that. And then one day I consulted my brother and sister. I said, where do you go at nighttime? (laughs) They have no idea what I'm talking about. They say, we're sleeping. I said, oh, you don't go anywhere when you're sleeping? They say, what are you talking about? Where do you go when you sleep? (laughs) I said, I always see my body leave. I will be wearing my pajamas. I will just leave, go down the staircase, glide down the staircase and go out the front door. And the next day, the next thing I remember, I woke up. Then I realized, oh, I am still different from my brother and my sisters. And until eight years old, I start playing, you know, acupuncture on dolls. That's when it's like, you are really different from all of us. So a thought occurs to me that I haven't asked you about before. Since you are so often able to see the past lives of your patients and and see shadows, uh, some of them coming for someone and you negotiate to see if Mm -hmm. you can get more time with Mm -hmm. them and so Mm -hmm. on. Um, Are you aware of your own past life? I am aware of my own past uh-huh. life. So that leads me to a natural question, which is, <laughs> what, what can you tell us or are willing to tell us of the past lives that have influenced uh, you as a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. as a, a profoundly committed Buddhist, as uh, someone who dedicates so much time to the homeless, as someone who... Uh, understood from early on that you could leave your body and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. Yes. What do you know of your own past life? Okay, so um, when we have, so my parents always bring these spiritual healers to our school Mm -hmm. to give lectures, to give talks, you know, back in the 1990s, year 2000. These are the things are very common in Asia, you know, Mm -hmm. the spiritual healing talks that... um, religion, God, Mm -hmm. ghost, you know, living people beyond life. So many different spirituals and every audience, you have to be invited to be in the audience, Mm -hmm. gets to ask one question. 
to the spiritual healer. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, a volunteer work. So they're not here to gain any business mm-hmm. or any um, thing in return. So, so my parents have always invited, you know, spiritual healers to come to the studio to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I would like to be there, you know. And uh, every time I ask a question, the spiritual guide, there are different female and male, different spiritual guides, right? They're not the same person. Mm. They will say, in the past life, you're a Buddhist abbot in a giant temple, and you have entourage that follows you. You have your own personal secretary that follows you everywhere you go. Mm. And that's all they will say. So I will ask them, what is my relationship with Buddhism? You know, why am I so close, so keen? Why do I always go to the temple? Every time I do not want to leave, when I'm in the temple, it's like you have to drag me out of the temple. Even when I leave the temple, I will still, in the car, I will look back at the temple. Like I'm leaving my home. I'm leaving the house. I'm leaving. I'm never going to return. That kind of sadness when I leave the temple. So those are the questions I ask different spiritual healers. I say, what is my relationship with it? So the spiritual healer, they will tell, for instance, they will tell you one story about their past life. They will tell another person what their spiritual past background was. And they always say, we saw you as a big abbot with people following you everywhere you go. Hmm. You know, so that's, I think these you know, not just one person. I think multiple people have said that, that I began to believe I have that ability and my work has just begun in this lifetime. So this is where I would answer. It's not what I said, but it's what they saw. So perhaps if anyone else wanted to chime in on what do they see in my past life, I would be more than happy to hear from them as well. But do you have direct personal experience of past lives? In other words, that's what other people told you. But mm-hmm. since you are able to see the past lives of other people, do you have direct experience of your own past life? My own past life is always fearless. Fearless? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When people are very fear, I'm always fearless. When things are chaos, I always can find the peace and stay calm and stay on the bottom of like a swimming pool, bottom of the ocean and not floating up until the chaos goes away because I know they will pass. I have, do I see myself in my abbot robe and outfit? No, I do not see that. But I have the ability to tell, to see, and then to feel and to sense what's coming and what will come to this patient what will come to how Cassie has, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. So that leads to another natural question. What do you see of my past life? I think you told me many times, Michael, I don't even have to look into it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? So our past life mm-hmm. with each other, you know, mm-hmm. we have, you and I have a very deep past mm-hmm. Life or lives. We've Mm. known each other Mm. and we are continuing our work Mm. together. In our past life, to me, I feel we have a scholar-colleague relationship Mm. for many, many decades. Mm. But we are always in the same field, but in different, maybe format Mm -hmm. into that. Your past life, you are ingrated. You are gift, given. 
and your gifts are so developed at such a young age mm. that you are here to finish what you didn't finish in your past mm-hmm. life from your scholar practice, from your academic practice to continue and to develop where you are, where you train, you give us the space to develop what we wanted to create. And you are just that ocean on the bottom where you know we can land and you're always there. Mm-hmm. And that's like compassion. That's like Mother Teresa. That's like a type of like Buddha where we can always lean on you. And you have that ability. Hopefully that makes sense. Well, I'm grateful for that. Hopefully but I am so aware, you know, when people ask me, who I am, I say I'm a radically imperfect human being with a few useful skills. You know, that's my self-concept. And I know that while you are fearless, I still experience fears, you know. Uh, Even though I'm not so afraid of death itself anymore, you know, when something begins to go wrong, I can feel fear. And so I, I am very aware in this life of, my, of how much work I still have to do. Let me put it that way. So when you say I'm here to finish or to further or my to work. Or to begin. Yeah. To begin. Mm-hmm. What, could you say what it is that I should be working on at this point in my life at age 80? Continue work on what you need to work on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> follow your heart. Don't stop. Don't let this age thing, you know, put a cap on your heart. No, I'm. You know, I feel inwardly very alive and very open, and in a sense, a lot of youthful energy. You know, just I'm still here, still doing the work, um, and not at all somehow troubled by uh, the physical changes, you know, because I really feel alive. Um, So at this point, Kathy, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this part. And uh, we're so grateful that you are here and you've added a lot to the conversation. So thank you you so much. And we'll take a quick break and continue. Yeah, so doing volunteer work is actually the passion of the next 40 years of my practice, you know, to, to, to start giving. Not only I give, I bring all my acupuncture students who are all doctoral students who have all been practiced. I said, come and volunteer. I said, you want to learn from the best? You have to start volunteering with no condition asked. Hmm. Then you can receive and start receiving, absorb and wanting to what you're looking for in your volunteer work. Mm. So that's my connection, why I continue to do the volunteer work for the past 23 years. Mm. It's a very small work, you know, compared to such as Commonwealth, to many other large nonprofit organizations. I know you personally, Michael, and I know this organization very well, that you are a true nonprofit organization where you don't ask for things. You guys just give and offer the amount of program, amount of work. You know, like you said earlier, Angela O and Tutu, their work with the refugee center in Tijuana, Mexico, 
wow, where I know that your executive director who recently visited that refugee center, it really opened my eyes. Like, wow, you think you're doing something to the community? You look at their work, you're like, nothing. You have so much to learn from their community. The world just opens up that you wanted to create more to others. You know, I don't think God counts quantity. I think God counts quality. That's my view. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Erlene Chang and host Michael Lerner. I think that an act of deep service by one human being to another human being is worth as much as someone who reaches thousands of people. I really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really believe that to be true. And um, the quality with which uh, you have reached out from your, from your school of uh, teaching Qigong and Tai Chi and from your uh, traditional Chinese medicine practice in El Cerrito, the quality of the outreach that you do with each patient that you treat Mm -hmm. and with your uh, teachers of Qigong and Tai Chi, um, that quality just shines. And and to me, it's that individual quality. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always the danger when organizations grow and, you know, develop Mm -hmm. that the quality can decline. Mm There's always that danger, and we always have to stay so alive mm-hmm. to it becoming um, institutionalized and losing that personal quality. So, yeah, um, but Commonweal is just a speck in the ocean compared to other people like Paul Farmer, for example, who's changed lives all around the world. But I think we, we each do what we can, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but the real question is, what is the quality of the spirit with which we each do whatever mm-hmm. we can? I want to come back to the big learning place for me with you beyond everything you've done for me personally and uh, for my immense respect for your work with cancer patients and and your you know your uh, school of uh, Qigong and Tai Chi to this question of whether we are allowed to take our own lives. And you feel very strongly that we should not. And I, if it weren't for our difference on this, I would say that um, I really believe that in an advanced civilization, there's a whole school of philosophy that says that how we treat self-deliverance, how we treat our right to take our own lives when life no longer seems worth living, is a very profound right that you know the great uh, British philosopher John Stuart Mill. Uh, it's an ancient tradition of of English jurisprudence that we have the right to decide what happens with our own bodies. 
Of that course. we have that mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And that if we reach a point where, in the most obvious case, where what lies ahead looks like just unmitigated suffering, mm-hmm. um, that it's not wrong to decide to leave. Now, I believe it at a deeper level. I believe that if at any point in our lives we just feel that we've done what we've been here to do and that we want to leave and leave at a point of our choosing, I'm, I'm quite radical on this. But if we take the more extreme case, when uh, you know states across the country and countries around the world are developing compassion and dying program, where we do have this. So on my own, I would believe deeply in this. But I am troubled by your deep belief that I'm wrong. All right? So I wanted to come back to that because you you tease me about it, but the teasing is serious, you know. You know, Michael, let me know before you do that. Um, But because it's not only a personal thing, I'm putting this out into the world. You know, I am saying to people, uh, you know, if it doesn't look worthwhile, if you've done everything you can to Mm -hmm. live a good life, Mm -hmm. that that is a, a serious but legitimate option. So I'd love you to say because I believe in holding all perspectives, and Mm -hmm. I respect yours deeply. Why is it that you oppose that? So um, you're right. Everybody has their own right Mm -hmm. and decision on what to do. Mm -hmm. Whatever they want to do is up to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've had this many discussions, many Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. To me, there's this body, physical body that we use as a utensil, as we use to deliver work. Mm-hmm. And there's also the mind, the, the heart that tells the body to do the work. A natural way of passing is when the mind and the body both start deteriorating. Or maybe the body is deteriorating, but the mind never stops. The spirit, the mission continues Someone who naturally passed away, that's when their mind may be still sharp until, of course, the very last few hours, even few days or few weeks. But the spirit, the, what you look back of that person, what they've done to deliver now, and then their attitude, their delivery has already been set. Don't you think that delivery can teach the body to die, can tell the body to die? Like my father, for him, for instance, himself, he passed away at age 94 years old, right? He passed away in four months. You know, he's a martial artist, well-known, world-renowned Taiji martial artist master. His whole life, when he started practicing martial arts, seven years old, until he was still teaching at 90, he was still teaching weapons, spear, holding a spear that's seven feet long, still teaching that, jumping in the room while he was teaching. In the last four months, he got very sick. He got his heart, his kidneys began to fail. And he was in bed. He had no energy. We tried to cheer him up. We said, you know, we brought all the magazine, all the books, all the 
things that he's done, he's accomplished in his life. I said, look, this is who you are. Why are you dying? Why are you so depressed? Why are you dying? He told me, he said, my body is no good. I'm dying. He told me, he said, you have to spend time with me if you like to now, because my body can no longer hold what my heart wants to do. And in four months, he passed away. Of course, he didn't have any other illnesses. His heart, he had a couple of heart attacks towards the last two years before he passed away. We didn't know until we took his doctor. He said, your dad had a heart attack. And then his kidney began to fail. So both heart and kidney failed. And then in four months, he finally said, I don't have any more strength to go on. And we knew that was the end. And towards the end, he just died naturally in his own bed. So to me, I'm going, okay, can he really like, come on, push yourself one more time, live another year? Or does he already knew his body is failing, is dying? Like many of my patients, you know, I've developed, you know, in practice, many of my patients are 30 years long relationship with your doctor and patient relationship. When they pass away, when in their last few days, I am often the one who's called in, they wanted to say goodbye, you know? And I will say, is this it? You know, I will ask the patient, is this it? The patient said, yes, this time I'm really going. I'm, I can no longer live, my body has failed, I can't. Maybe it's through the 30 years I've teaching them how to recognize what's the difference and their illnesses and things like that. But I believe the physical body deteriorates whether you take your own life or not, just let it deteriorate. Finish the last journey of life. Experience the beauty of shutting your eyes in a natural way. Instead of you know, a compassionate dying where you decide, let it do it naturally. That's how my belief is. Otherwise, you didn't finish the journey. But you, you didn't also, finish the life. You, you right? also deeply believe that the soul doesn't do so well if yes. you take your life. That's right. I yeah. believe. And that's a deep Buddhist belief of yours. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if other religions have that belief mm -hmm. as well. But well, yes. I think most religions, certainly Judaism and, and Christianity, mm -hmm. also agree uh, that we shouldn't take our lives. So I think it's probably in a lot of religions. But then there are other traditions, if you think about the Eskimos, where, you know, old people just wander off into the snow mm -hmm. when they can't move. And so there are lots of traditions uh, mm -hmm. uh, where, uh, and I think even, I think, anyway, there are traditions where people would rather leave than live under conditions that deprive them of their fundamental dignity. That's true. And we're not going to resolve this today, but I, I point to it because um, it is a very profound ethical, personal, spiritual question. Mm -hmm. And um, it is the one place that um, you haven't yet convinced me uh, that it's wrong to tell people that mm -hmm. they have this choice. So I, I also don't think it's wrong, but right. it, like you said, it's your own choice. Yeah. Everybody has the right to their own choice. But you don't think that it makes things good for the soul after death? You will not. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the point. <laughs> you really believe that it's not a good plan not for Not a the good soul. plan for now. <laughs> <laughs> so as we come to the end of this conversation, first of all, 
I thank you for um, allowing me to be your patient, for joining the staff of the Cancer Help Program, for uh, being on this journey together for, for many years mm-hmm. now, and for your deep belief that we've been, uh, we've been walking together, not only in this life, but in past lives. Mm-hmm. I'm really honored by that. And um, I'm honored just by your teachings. But as I think about our whole conversation, a number of things have become clear to me that in the years of knowing you, I didn't really fully understand. I understood I didn't know that you've been seeing spirits since you were a very young girl. I didn't know that uh, from very young you would experience yourself leaving the body at night in your pajamas, looking down on your body, Mm -hmm. sliding down the stairs and Mm -hmm. going off somewhere. Uh, I did know that you were practicing acupuncture with your dolls from very young. I did know that you wanted to be a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine from very young. Uh, I did know about your illustrious family history of traditional Chinese medicine. You've described what it is that that lineage and history brings to your practice that, say, a Western practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine takes other paths as well. I knew about your work with the homeless shelter, and um, but I didn't. I did not know until today of the the seers that told you that you had been an abbot in a large uh, Buddhist monastery, and how that connects with your work with the city of a thousand Buddhas, and how deeply your connection with Buddhist temples goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know, didn't make the connection between the history of uh, your mother's extraordinary Kuan Yin art, the history of art, and the work that you encouraged Kathy, encouraged Kathy Baldanza to do mm-hmm. in the homeless shelter with art, uh, which connects deeply with our work at Commonweal with visual thinking strategies and, and other dimensions of our work with art. Um, I hadn't really understood that after 20 years of your practice, when your experience of your uh, mastery of traditional Chinese medicine felt complete to you, that this part of you that from very early on wanted to help those um, with uh, underprivileged people. And I didn't really make the connection of that to your fountain project and your the extraordinary amount of energy in your life you put into mm-hmm. that. And I didn't make the connection, which your work with Kathy Baldanza helped us make, that when you can encourage your patients to give to others, that actually that creates a sense of agency, among other things. It's part of the sense of when Kathy talked about how she came in terrified of dying and how it took months to get months beyond of, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and when Kathy said, she used to say that Commonweal saved her life, but now she says that Commonweal helped her to understand how she could save her own life. 
So the centrality of returning the sense of agency, both in relation to our own healing and in relationship to how we in turn can give to others, and how powerful that becomes for Kathy and for so many of us in going beyond our fear of death, you know. There is the great Hindu teaching which summarizes it for me so beautifully. Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from the darkness to the light. And lead us from the fear of dying to the knowledge of immortal life. And somehow or other, that's very core to your work. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like just going back to Cassie's case, Cassie's mm -hmm. right here, that um, everybody have that healing ability of healing ourselves and healing others. Mm -hmm. What I like to add on is don't let that, don't let your creativity become dark. Let the creativity come out and don't think that you're doing so little. One of the things when I often encourage all my patients to do, I say, do some volunteer work. Go to the food pantry, go to the food bank, go out on the street, ask, what can I do for you? About 75% of my patients will say, no, that's not me. I cannot do that. I'm too old. I can't drive. I can't see. I can't hear. They already put a break on what they can't do instead of they, all they think is they wanted to go through all the negative, I cannot do this, I cannot do that. I, then they will end, yes, I cannot do. Instead of what if we start with a positive tone? Yes, I can continue, I can try, I can create, I can do this. For me to knock on a traditional homeless shelter, which is Catholic-based, They've been running for 56 years, all run by self-funding, none of the government support. To knock on that door is because I want to try. It's very difficult. It took me many, many years to have them accept, oh, what? You're doing acupuncture? You wanted to put needles in our patients? No, that's not allowed. You are doing needles in a homeless shelter where these are, many of them are coming from a drug background. No. So to how do you persuade them with just words are very, just words, but you actually keep on going back. I said, let me try. I said, if it doesn't work, I back off. I will never bother you again. But I said, what else can you do, like the homeless shelter, for your residents, do you offer any alternatives that maybe it can help them to land on a better situation for their life? So I always ask everybody, I say, what do you do for volunteers? What can you do for volunteers? And this volunteering is not just to donate money. Donate money is marvelous, but if you can actually put yourself into the action, that's very mm. precious. And I believe everyone has that ability to do, but they're maybe afraid to come forward or to try. Try it, everybody. Try. So it's not only agency, but creativity. Big time creativity. And, and creativity is such a healing force. 
big yeah. time. So, Erlene, any final thoughts or reflections? <laughs> will you let me know <laughs> what your decision will be? <laughs> I promise. I promise. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think don't let your dreams die. Mm. Everybody, don't let your dream inspire yourself, but no one support you to inspire yourself. Create, inspire, follow your dream, follow your vision, keep going forward, and don't let anything stop you. Even in the recovery from cancer, from an injury, psychological, traumatic, or physically, keep on moving forward, you know, keep on moving forward and create that possibility for yourself. If you don't do it for yourself, nobody will do it for you. Nobody will follow you to help you, but do it for yourself deep down. Do it for yourself. So that's my reflection. And thank you for this opportunity to be back on Commonwealth ground, to smell the fresh, enormous amount of healing energy here. It's gorgeous. Everybody should come. And everybody should come meet Michael Lerner <laughs> and talk about life and dying with him. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Arlene it's been Chang, precious. thank you for being back with us at the New School. And thank you for bringing your Taiwanese family and friends here and to all of you who've come to be here today. This was um, very precious to me personally, and I'm infinitely grateful for your work and presence in our lives. Thank you, Arlene Chang. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Erlene Chang and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water, I feel home. Water, my body.